Okay. Does anyone remember what we discussed last lecture? Hey, what's up? Kelly. Glycolysis and redox. So a bunch of metabolism, right? So we covered skeletal muscle metabolism. And heart. We talked about heart too. So we mentioned fat, right? The fatty acid oxidation. And heart also utilizes glucose. But it, it likes, it also utilizes a lot of fatty acids. So that involved, we talked about time, pathway, used. We had this ATP, CP pathway. Then we have glycolysis, glycolysis, and really what this means is the anaerobic glycolysis. And then cell respiration. Right? Yeah, and then so big part of that because really whether it's glycolysis or aerobic respiration it actually both of them go through glycolysis it's just one way is anaerobic the other is the other is aerobic right so this would refer to the red going that way to lactic acid and all that. And then the black would refer to, if it goes this way, into the mitochondria. All right? So, and this would go to lactic acid and then get secreted out, right? And uh, we don't have to do all this stuff again, do we? Hey, Jeff. Morning. Hey. You made it. Well done. All right. So, yeah, we don't have to do all that stuff again. And then if it goes to the mitochondria, there's several pathways, right? It undergoes pyruvate oxidation.
crabs. And then ATS or ATC. Oxfoss. Alright, where here you go, you convert uh, pyruvate to acetyl CoA. Krebs you convert, well you just do a bunch of stuff with acetyl-CoA, right? You start with acetyl-CoA, you end with oxaloacetate, right? But you do this thing twice and you get, here you get 2NADH, 2CO2, and you put in a CoA. Two CoA. Here you get six NADH, two FADH2, two ATP or GTP, depending on the book, four CO2. Right? Is that per acetyl CoA? No, that's that's yeah. Sorry. Right, and then finally you go into oxfos, where you actually use all that, right? And we said that the way oxfos works is there's a bunch of complexes in the inner membrane that. Essentially, NADH goes to the first complex, FADH2 goes to the second complex, and they start undergoing oxidoreductive They start undergoing redox reactions, right? Where they're moving electrons. That's why they call it the electron transport chain or system. And as they move electrons down through these complexes. The final electron acceptor is oxygen. Okay. To form water. Okay, so the final electron acceptor, so the things that are donating electrons are the NADH, and the FADH2, and what's that undergoes a series of reduction reactions that then pumps H pluses into this inner membrane space. Hopefully, you guys can see that. thus creating a proton gradient, right? which then can be harnessed by the, what is the key enzyme that takes that gradient and turns it into lots of ATP? Tell, yep, ATP synthase, right? I was going to say, tell your neighbor, but 
Yeah, so in here, I didn't make much room for it. We'll put it over here. Or no, we can't. I don't have any room. Here, I'll move these. Sorry, this is all smashed into the corner. But there's an enzyme right here that's going to utilize these protons. It's going to utilize that proton gradient to make lots and lots and lots of ATP. So out of this process, oxfos, you get like another approximately 34 ATP. Was it 32, 34? 34? Thanks. Right? So you get another 34. So you got, if you go this way, right? So if you went this way, you got 2 ATP. And if you recycle this, you actually have to spend another 6 ATP. Okay, so you, you get a little bit out of glycolysis. You get 2 ATP, that's something, per molecule glucose. Right? But if you go this way, then you're going to get that 2, plus you get these two, right? Plus those 34, it's like 38 ATP per molecule glucose, which is like a lot more ATP, which is good, right? But then we also said that, because we're going to get into the heart today, right? So we also said that the heart, the heart, likes fatty acids, really it's fatty acid oxidation. It also does this, okay, it also does this, it uses glucose, okay, to make, to go to the mitochondria, but it also likes to use fat to generate its acetyl-CoA. And the way it does that is it converts it, I don't have the slide anymore, but it converts it into acyl, it converts it into an intermediate. It breaks down triglycerides, converts them into uh, molecules that then bind carnitine. And carnitine is what actually shuttles the precursors into the heart, or in, sorry, into the mitochondria where they then can be converted to acyl-CoA and then acetyl-CoA. Which is the key molecule we need for the Krebs cycle, right? So basically you go straight from fat to the Krebs cycle. You can skip glycolysis. Okay. So I guess I could try to put in this membrane I can't really fit it. Sorry I like did this in a weird place. But there's a transporter on the membrane of your mitochondria called carnitine. Um, well, it binds carnitine and then it's transported via a carnitine uh, fatty acid transporter into the mitochondria. Okay? I don't, I'm not going to draw that on there. Just know that uh, the fatty acids have to bind carnitine before they can make it into the mitochondria. Okay. Is that why we use uh, L-carnitine as an energy supplement? That's, now you know what it is, right? Yeah. Now you know what it is. So it's involved in the shuttling of, of things into the mitochondria, fats into the mitochondria. And some other, there's some other interesting 
properties of carnitine, generally. And it's also why it will help you, allegedly it's going to help you metabolize fat. Right. Okay. So we did that. So that's cool. That was a lot of metabolism. Right. But that's done now. So now we can move on to more, uh, more action potentials. <laughs> Yay. It's all, it's all gradients, right? More gradients. So now different ions doing different stuff. And, you know, Today we're going to get into how a heart beats, okay? And this is not anatomy class, but just in case you don't know where the heart is, or just in case, you know, I don't know. Here's a picture of the circulatory system. All right, your heart is located behind your sternum, flanked by your ribs, all right? Uh, and of course, you have a whole circulatory system vessels that are uh, delivering nutrients. The heart is the pump that is delivering these nutrients all throughout your body. And the heart is composed of different types of cells and tissues. Just like, you know, your skeletal muscle, it's mainly skeletal muscle, but you have neuronal input. You have neuromuscular junctions, right? You have that somatic motor neuron that's coming in, right? Well, the heart, there's a lot of autonomic connections to the heart. But the heart itself, as you can see here in the blue and the red, contains special type of, of tissue that's known as autorhythmic tissue. Um, it's kind of its own unique thing. It doesn't really exist anywhere else in your body. And this tissue that's in blue and red there, that is the tissue that causes the heart to beat. Okay, starting with the SA node, the AV node, these nodes and the connections that they have. Well, we're going to get into this a little bit further. But this is to give you an idea that, of course, you have these big vessels and valves, right? Uh, that's part of your heart. Somewhat. I mean, the, the atria, right, the valves are kind of, some of these valves are, are, are what separate the atria from the ventricles, right? But all, it also, you know, there's some big giant vessels coming out of here because your heart is trying to pump through these big kind of uh, pipes to either your lungs or to your entire body, right? And then there's a lot of muscle. There's actual cardiac contractile muscle, right? It's a striated muscle. But then there's also this conductive kind of autorhythmic tissue. And it's located not just in these nodes, but also um, kind of innervated into the, the muscles as well, somewhat. OK, so if you were to take an electrode and stick them into the heart at different places, this is how you would really be able to see the difference between that kind of autorhythmic tissue and your heart contractile tissue, right? So if you look at the shape of the action potential, it's very different in these different regions. So, and then 
you know, exactly what it says there. So autorhythmic cells Okay, their action potential looks like this. Like a typical action potential, basically. Except when they reach the bottom, they automatically start to depolarize again until they hit threshold. Then they do it again. And so on and so forth. Whereas the contractile cells... And what we're talking about here is not force production. Okay, we're not talking about the, the muscle activity. We're talking about the electrical activity as we're measuring, right, with a voltmeter or with some sort of meter, right? And so that's going to look like this. It's got this long plateau. And so on and so forth. These are not meant to match each other. I'm just giving you an example of the shape of the action potentials. Very different. You've never seen the sh an action potential that looks like that, right? You guys see that? Do I need to move? Whoops. That better? Okay, so your heart is consisting of both of these types of tissues or cells. Autorhythmic cells and contractile cells. These are their action potentials. Action potentials. Okay. Okay, so Another thing that you can uh, kind of extrapolate from this picture is you see that the action potentials are coming from the autorhythmic cells, right? They're originating there, and then it's propagating along the muscle tissue. And as that's happening, there's something unique to cardiac cells that skeletal muscle cells didn't have, and that's these connections. Okay, so these connections here these wiggly line types of things. Okay, those are intercalated discs. Okay. So contractile cells are connected via intercalated discs. The C or K. Okay. C or K. And those intercalated discs contain some junctions that you may recognize or remember. Okay. So here is like a contractile muscle cell. Here is the intercalated disc. And here's another contractile muscle cell. Okay. That disc contains 
something to hold the two together. What type of junctions hold things together very strongly? Yes. What's that? That's definitely in there. So gap junctions are in there, but gap junctions are tunnels. Remember, gap junctions form tunnels. What's that? Anchoring junctions. Yes. Yeah, so the anchoring junctions. So the desmosomes or anchoring junctions. Those are in here. All right. So they're kind of they're in here, and so they're kind of anchoring these two cells together. Can you guys see that color? Anchoring? Kind of? <laughs> Jay's like, I don't know about that one. Let's try this. There you go. They're mixing together now, but hopefully you can... Anchoring junctions. Those are kind of holding the two things together. So if this one contracts, it will cause this one to also contract. They're connected, right? So if this one moves, it makes the other one move, right? So the force can help, <laughs> that can help the force to propagate mechanically is the fact that they're so strongly connected, right? So you imagine the current comes from the contractile cell. It causes this one to start firing. Mechanically, it's connected to these. So that may also help contribute to, you know, um, although what's really, what's really uh, causing the potential to propagate and what's really causing the other one to fire is the other type of junction that Sandy, you mentioned, which is the gap junction. There are also gap junctions in here. Aren't you glad we learned about all these junctions? Okay, so gap junctions, and what do gap junctions do? They're tunnels, right? So they allow the signal to propagate through, right? So if an action potential, you know, if there's a bunch of ions that filled this side, then they could get through to the other side over here to help that one then start to contract, right? Something like, say, calcium. So the action potential can propagate also through the gap junctions. Okay, so a combination of the ions being able to travel through and the mechanical connection allows these things to kind of contract in unison. All originating from the autorhythmic electrical cells. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. So let's get into the your favorite part, that how the act potential is actually happening. Uh, and let's start with the autorhythmic cells. So these ones, okay? So what's happening here, and what's cool about these things is, well, first off, it's like a regular action potential, right? Once it hits threshold, let's say the threshold is here, or whatever, right? So once it hits, 
Once it hits threshold, boom, you have a regular action potential and then it hyperpolarizes, right? You guys already know that, except the only difference here is that instead of sodium rushing in, and if it's the, if it's the autorhythmic cells, it's calcium. Okay, so calcium is rushing in. You guys see this? Here, I'll put it like that. Okay. Calcium rushes in. It's the same story. Okay, eventually those calcium channels close and potassium channels are open. Right? Potassium channels open and then that allows potassium to rush out, right? Technically that happens here. And potassium rushes out. All right, let's do. Let's just do that. Okay. That's all the same, except well, it's calcium instead of sodium. The difference and what makes autorhythmic cells unique and the reason why they make the heart beat is the funny channels. They're literally, they're called funny channels because whoever discovered these things are like, wow, that's kind of funny. Like it's the only, like he would be measuring and like they would become activated as things went down instead of up. Usually you get depolarized and that triggers an action potential. But these things would actually, as it went down, they'd become activated and turn on. All right? And so that's what these guys are. Okay, these uh, right here, these are primarily sodium, ch sodium channels. Okay, and they're called funny channels. Funny channels. I'll say that uh, right. So right here, basically they have their own threshold and it's a negative threshold. So imagine that they have their own threshold here. And every time it goes down far enough, it causes these sodium channels to open, right? So that, which causes a depolarization, and that does the the ion that's rushing in is sodium. So sodium rushes in. Okay, and that current from the sodium rushing in is called IF, right? If you can read this tiny little thing, that's, that's an F, IF. The F stands for funny. They're funny channels. What's the I stand for? Current. So in, you know, V equals IR. I is the current, voltage is V, resistance is R. I is, current is like the movement of, so, it's also called a funny current. <laughs> it's like, so IF, right? It's I funny. Funny current. And it's funny because these channels are like, uh, they're just different than all the other channels in that they become activated when the voltage is going down. Right? Their threshold is, this threshold it hits as it's going up. This threshold hits as it's going down.
Okay. Is that sucking cycle between calcium and uh, sodium? I mean, there's so much calcium on the outside. Like, even as this rushes in, it's never gonna. Well, it, it's only here. It's it's a voltage gated thing that's gonna cause it to now close. But it's not because things reach equilibrium. I mean, maybe somewhat. Okay, well, yeah. So it finally arrives at something that's closer to the outside. But the outside's still like way more. You know, and then what, what's going to cause it to then re, uh, repolarize is the potassium channel. So, but yeah, I don't know why this system was, you know, is the way that it is, where it's calcium rushing in instead of sodium. But calcium turns out to be, yeah, very important for cardiac function. Um... Well, you know, we used to take hearts out of the body and hang them on Langendorf's and uh, make them beat and do all kinds of experiments. And the calcium concentration was the most important. If you had too much calcium, it'd screw everything up. Um, not enough calcium, obviously. You know, it's, it's calcium is very important for proper uh, function and conductance of the heart. For probably this reason is that it's it's the primary uh, ion rushing in in the conductive system, the autorhythmic cells. Okay, so when we're describing this action potential, so is everyone clear on the funny channels? Do you see how this will give the heart a beat? Because as soon as, as soon as it rushes out, as soon as the action potential is done, it's gonna start again, just because those channels open. It's not like it's waiting for neuronal input from different places. It's like as soon as it goes down far enough, it immediately starts going up again immediately starts going up again. So that will cause the heart, as long as it has these ions, if you take it out of the body, and if you put it into the right con you know, pressure conditions, in the presence of the right ions, you could just make this thing pump on its own, at its own beat. And if it has more funny channels, it will have a faster beat. If it has less funny channels, it will have a slower beat. And different regions of your heart have different concentrations of funny channels. Of course, the area that has the most, where is it? Oh man, I give it to you in the next lecture, that sucks. Well here, the area that has the most funny channels is here, is the SA node and the, these areas, the SA node and the AV node areas. They have the most funny channels. But also these uh, fiber, Purkinje fibers, these regions over here in the ventricle also have some funny channels. But if, if you were to take the heart out of the body, and if you didn't have any input from the SA node or the AV node, the heart would still contract, but it would contract much slower. So there's less funny channels. But that's why they call this area the pacemaker. Because if this fires, it will cause the propagation of the action potential, right? If this fires, and if everything's working well, that's connected. How do I not put here? I'm, I'm going to have to show you guys a real slide. I mean, I could draw it. I guess I could draw it. So here's your heart, right? I'm a terrible artist, though. 
you've got your ventricles, your atria, right, you know, left, right ventricles, left, right atria. You've got your SA node and AV node. I'll try to use a different color here. Okay, and these are actually connected via these internodal kind of uh, circuitry, right? And there's also Bachman's bundle, which runs off this way to help that atria contract. All right, and then, of course, these things run down your interventricular septum and then up via your Purkinje fibers and other. So in green is kind of like all the contractile circuitry, right? So there, all I was trying to draw is that, there, of course, there's a connection between this and this. It also runs off this way. And so your highest, your highest amount of funny channels are here. But all of this green circuitry, all of this that, uh, conducted system has some concentration of funny channels that would cause them to. And so you'll see this as we get more into cardiac physiology. Sometimes there's a block. So sometimes actually, you know, your, your uh, brain, well, let me also say this. If you take the heart out of the body, it will contract. But if it's in your body, it contracts faster. Because, why, now talk to your neighbor for a second. Why would it be that the heart would contract faster inside of your body than outside of your body? Talk to your neighbor. Yeah. Yeah, because of course, yeah, of course I drew this in the wrong spot, but yeah, you have a lot of sympathetic and parasympathetic input, right, to the heart at these different regions. Some are running to your actual, to the conductance uh, fibers here. Others are running to your SA node. All right, so Autonomic, the short answer is autonomic input. Right. I have a good slide of that. You have a good picture of it in the back. Let's see, do I have a good? Hmm. See if I could find a good slide. detail. Oh, it's a video. Yeah, this is good enough. 
right? So you can see that there's vagal, so parasympathetic innervation at the different nodes, and also sympathetic innervation at the SA node and also the ventricle, the left ventricle. Right? And then, of course, uh, there's also input into your blood vessel. You know, there's also autonomic input into your blood vessels, causing them to dilate and constrict, which will also affect pressure and, and, and things like this as well. Okay. There we go. Okay, so we made it through autorhythmic. So everybody understands that these, this conduction system is what's actually causing your heart to beat. Right? And the real unique component of the heart is the funny channels. I love that name, the funny channel. Okay. So, this is just to kind of give you an idea of uh, the different types of cells in the heart compared to skeletal muscle. Um, you can read more into this table. Um, we're going to see that we're going to get into contractile cells, okay, where it's much more similar, except that you have this extended plateau as we drew. Um, and the. the uh, Resting potential is a little bit different. All right, so we already drew this, right? You guys already understand the intercalated disc and how it contains these different types of junctions and how these connect the different fibers together. Okay. Yeah, I guess we should then talk about how um, the actual action potential works in contractile uh, cells, so in cardiac muscle, it's very similar to how it was in skeletal muscle. And it's the same process. Action potential arrives. Let's see. Should I, I draw this all out? I mean, essentially, all you need to know is that when it goes down the T tubule, when the action potential propagates down the T-tubule. Remember there's this DHP channels. In the case of the heart, these are actually functioning as calcium channels. Okay? These are calcium channels. Okay, so when those open, that causes calcium causes calcium to rush in to the cardiac muscle. Okay, in the case of skeletal muscle, this was a mechanical connection to the ryanine receptors, right? In the case of cardiac tissue, they're actually functioning as calcium channels, where they're going to let calcium come in, okay, which is then going to trigger the release of calcium because remember, you also have the sarcoplasmic reticulum, which is also full of calcium. Right? And you have these ryanidine receptors, which are calcium channels. So in this case, it's the influx of calcium which activates the ryanidine receptors to then open and allow the calcium to come out. 
And there's your quote-unquote calcium spark, right? Because it's all calcium driven. An influx of calcium causes the release of calcium. And then the rest is the same. Calcium binds troponin, troponin, tropomycin, moves, all that stuff, right? So this is really the only fundamental difference, is that instead of these DHP channels being mechanically connected to ranadin receptors, they're actually functioning as calcium channels. Calcium rushes in, which causes calcium to rush out there. Same story, calcium binds troponin. Oh. You know, what do I do this? <laughs> calcium binds binds troponin causing and then the myosin head group being able to bind to the actin binding site. What other colors do I have? Yep. They're striated just like skeletal muscle. So in skeletal muscle, in skeletal muscle, oops, got to be careful not to mix up my markers with the other prof here. Let's see, one of these must work. In skeletal, so this is in cardiac, right? So in skeletal muscle, In skeletal muscle, this T-tubule the DHP channel receptor in this case it functions more as a receptor we'll call it a receptor because it doesn't use its calcium channel activity instead it's actually mechanically connected to the ryanine receptor of the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So in skeletal muscle, a mechanical connection between the two is what causes the calcium to come out. So this is a mechanical 
connection. So you do not need the channel activity of the DHP channel. Okay, Skeletal muscle, it's been shown. You don't need it. So it's got to be some sort of mechanical connection. Now these literally just open these. Okay, the action potential propagates. These things become activated and open those. Whereas over here, when these become activated, they allow calcium to come out. Right? And uh, the rest is the same though. Calcium binds troponin and tropomy tropomyosin complex shifts, allowing the myosin head to bind to the actin binding site. That's all the same because it's striated muscle. So it's got the sarcomeres and it does all that. So it's really pretty similar in the way that they actually contract. The difference is the action potentials. In one case, you've got these funny channels in the autorhythmic. And then when it comes to these things, when the action potential hits, okay. When that action potential propagates to the muscle, the contractile cell has a very different shape. You know, it's the same idea, it hits threshold. Here's threshold. Still, it's gonna receive input that's gonna cause it to reach threshold, and then that's gonna trigger an action potential. And this is still caused by sodium rushing in. Okay, this is contractile. Not autorhythmic, but contractile cell action potential. Not autorhythmic, but contractile. You guys know the difference? Talk to your partner real quick and just clarify the difference between autorhythmic cells and contractile cells. So what's the difference? Anybody want to tell me? Anyone feel confident? Hey, Midian, there you are. Hey, what's up? Sorry, I, I missed you in the beginning. Hey, Jay. The action potentials are very different, right? Um, and then their physical location, right? So the contractile cells are kind of like the muscle. Whereas the autorhythmic cells are kind of like the electrical
tissue of the heart. Does that make sense? So here we're talking about the action potentials in the muscle. Okay, so those things, and we talked about the autorhythmic is all this electrical circuitry, right? But everything else, the heart, you know, when these things fire, you know, it causes the contractile cells to fire, right? As this electrical circuitry goes down, that's going to cause the contractile cells to fire, right? So you could think of like the green is the autorhythmic cells and the blue is the contractile cells, okay? In that bad picture. Here, here's a better one, right? All of this, all that's in here in white, green, gray, that's all muscle. Those are all contractile cells. Okay, you can't see a lot of the muscle because it's an open shot. But you can see this wall. See how thick this wall is? That's all muscle. Besides the very top Purkinje fiber layer. That is all muscle. Your left ventricle is pretty, that's like the strongest region of your heart because that's got to pump that blood through your entire body. Right? So that's muscle. That's all contractile cells. But this stuff in red here, that's all autorhythmic. Okay, so let's go back to the contractile cell action potential. Okay, so what's different here is once it hits threshold, okay, sodium rushes in, but here, instead of, yes, sodium channels close, potassium channels open, just like a regular action potential, right? Except also calcium channels open. So right here, Both calcium and potassium channels open. You can imagine what that would look like, right? Because hopefully you guys know now that when it comes to a cell, here's a cell membrane. Hopefully we now know that on the outside, on the inside, on the outside we have way more calcium. And on the inside, we have more potassium. With the exception of the sarcoplasmic reticulum or ER, but the actual cytosol, this is how it is, right? So if I open calcium channels and potassium channels at the same time, right? So if I open calcium channels, and if I open potassium channels at the same time, which way does calcium want to go? Up or down? Down. So calcium wants to go down and into the cell. And which way does potassium want to go? Up or down? Up. So potassium wants to go out of the cell. So they're competing with each other. One's going, so as positives are going out, that would make the inside more negative, which normally is what makes it go down. 
Okay, however, calcium channels are also open and they're causing positive to rush in. So what does that do? Well, that just makes it be flat. It causes a plateau. Which you don't see normally because you don't have the calcium channels doing anything. Okay. Then finally, calcium channels close. Potassium channels remain open, then allowing this thing to go back down. Okay? That makes sense? So that's why it has this crazy shape. Now why on earth would you want to do this? Why would you want to, and this is another thing to talk to your partner about. Why would you want this extended plateau in the action potential in cardiac muscle? Talk to your partner. Okay, so what do we what do we figure out? You know that because we already discussed it. I should I should have said you couldn't say. Anybody else? Yes. Control your heart rate. Yeah, but the the biggest thing controlling heart rate is the electrical conducted system, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's definitely not gonna flow properly if you're constantly contracting, right? Which would also affect heart rate, definitely, right? But look at, let, let's, let me remind you of this. Remember in skeletal muscle, the action potential is short, right? So if I give it a stimulus here, 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 
here, here, here, here. Right? It's pretty short. So it'll go like this, like this, but these will summate. And then this could cause actual tetany, like a cramp. Right? What if that happened in, in cardiac muscle? And Kylie, you're right. If this happened in cardiac muscle, if it went into tetany, that would totally screw up the heart rate, right? That would basically, and you're also right, Erica, that if your heart went into tetany, nothing would flow, right? Imagine your heart just has a cramp and it's just constantly tight. Nothing would happen. Your heart would basically be in arrest, right? Which would suck, right? You could that you're not delivering any blood to your body, which would be like a heart attack or a, or a stroke or something, right? Or just like uh, if it's intermittent, maybe you just have like heart failure, kind of like uh, I don't I I can't even imagine what it would be like if it were to happen because it doesn't happen. So we you know, and the reason why it doesn't happen, the reason why this never happens, is because if this were to happen in in cardiac muscle. The same story, okay? Okay? In cardiac muscle, it would look like this. Right? Those should all look the same, but I'm not the best drawer. But you get the idea? So even if I hit it, if I hit it, it's about that long. If I hit it again, okay, it's about that long. If I were to hit it twice, it wouldn't matter because remember the refractory period? Every neuron has a refractory period. So what we're doing by making that long plateau is we are extending the refractory period. Remember like when you flush a toilet? As soon as you flush it, you can't flush it again. So this is like a really quick flush, right? But this is a really long flush. And it's about as long as it takes for the muscle to contract. Okay, so that that way you never end up having the heart summate or end up in tetany. If you did that, you'd stop pumping blood to your entire body and I can't even imagine what that would be like. But it doesn't happen because our heart just doesn't do that, okay? So does that make sense? It kind of looks like a, a tetanic contraction, right? kind of looks like it. But it's, it's just a single action potential rather than a summated action potential that's in tetany. Okay? That makes sense? Okay, so that's, that's the point of that. That's why it has this long plateau. It saves your heart from getting cramped or from arresting or freezing and stopping from pumping blood. Your poor heart is always beating. It can never get a break. If it gets a break, then you, the lights shut off in your brain. And stuff, right? So the poor heart never gets a break. And this is what we were just describing, right? So technically, technically, it's not exactly the same. But it's very close, and much closer than uh, than in skeletal muscle. 
And yes, this is what this does, is it gives it a nice long refractory period. Okay. And this is just showing you the, the difference between, this is skeletal muscle, right? Skeletal muscle, you can end up with this tetany, tet summated tetanic contraction, which thankfully doesn't happen in the heart. Okay, how are we doing on time? 903, sweet, okay. I've got a bunch of other slides in here. This is just describing to you what we kind of already talked about, which is that you also control your heart via your, your brain, via your autonomic nervous system, right? So you have a lot of you know, parasympathetic and sympathetic innervation into your heart and also to your veins and arteries. And there's also feedback. So you have baroreceptors, so you have kind of blood pressure receptors in your aorta and in your carotids that can kind of also help. There's a, there's a connection there. There's a reflex, baroreceptor reflex. And uh, if you've ever like been sitting down and if you stand up really quick and you know how you like sometimes get lightheaded, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> So some of that has to do with the fact that as you change positions, you're changing pressure. And your baroreceptors react to that. And they start to change. You have parasympathetic and sympathetic input coming from your midbrain that will change your heartbeat and change your dilation in, uh, in your circulation to try to adapt to your changes in pressure as you're going from lying to sitting or, or something like this. Or going up into space and coming back down or something like that. Anything that would severely affect pressure changes. Uh, yeah, and so of course, the sympathetic input's gonna make the heart beat faster, right? And parasympathetic makes it beat slower. Um, and here's just an example of, of, of um, you know, how that could actually be happening. All right, uh, yeah, once again, baroreceptors sense these blood pressures. So you have these in your aorta, and you have them in your carotids. This is a better picture of that. All right, those are sensing. They're basically blood pressure sensing all the time. And they will f give feedback into your midbrain, which then, of course, autonomically is connected to your heart. Okay, so there's a circuit there. I think, I wish we did the baroreceptor reflex in this class. That'd be like a good lab to do. All right, more and more of that. So, um, same thing, okay, but at the neurotransmitter level, right? How these things actually, right? So, uh, depending on what it is, right here, we're talking about the baroreceptor reflex. So, if you have, if you if you detect a decrease in in uh, blood pressure, or sorry, if you detect, so either way, so if you detect a decrease or an increase, right? This feedback to the to your, uh, it's first detected by the baroreceptors. Oh, here we go. So an increase in blood pressure is detected by the baroreceptors, okay, which then feeds into your midbrain, which then does some sort of autonomic output, uh, which will then cause more, depending on what it is, either more or less neurotransmitter, blah, blah, blah. You guys get the idea. Ultimately, this affects cardiac output will be the direct connections to the heart. But then also remember that you have innervations into your 
uh, systemic ar arteries and veins. So those dilating or constricting also affects resistance, which can also affect, like more resistance will increase pressure, right? So vasoconstriction will increase pressure, vasodilation will decrease pressure, combined with increasing or decreasing heart rate. All right, all right. Let's see, what else? Ah, so of course we should talk about how the blood actually flows through the heart. All, right, all of you guys should walk out of here knowing how the heart actually works. Not just the action potentials, but what's actually where the blood's going. All right, I think you, you probably get this in anatomy. Yeah. Right? But it's good to review it because it's, it is important to actually know which direction the blood goes. Right? There's always this joke that, um, you know, there'll be people in the lab and research that will be, you know, working on cardiac physiology, but they actually don't even know how the heart pumps. Right? So it's like they're just way into like the cellular molecular details, right? So let's take a step back real quick and make sure that we understand the directionality of the heart. Let's see. Should I draw it or should I just use these pictures? Well, let's see. So the heart has four chambers, right? These being atria and these being ventricles. Right? And then it's the apex. So really this thing's kind of off center a little bit it's kind of more like that right although this one's also bigger how can I draw this am I drawing this right yeah I'm drawing it right it's because this has a lot more muscle here that's why technically if I cut this very piece off this is the apex that's considered to be part of the left ventricle. Okay. This is the left ventricle, right ventricle, left atria, right atria. It's backwards, right? It's anatomical, so you imagine that they're, they're facing you. It's like me here, like, hey. Left, left ventricle, right? Right ventricle, left atria, right atria. So the blood ultimately comes from the inferior and superior vena cava, right? Vena cava. Did I spell that right? Probably not. Vena cava, C-A. Into the right atria, right? So blood fills here first. Which makes sense because you know remember your circuitry their SA node is here your AV node is pretty much there so your input right the first thing that starts to fire is the SA node 
And it also goes along here to Bachman's bundle. Okay, so the first thing in the heart that starts to fire is the atria. First the atria contract. Okay, and then the nomenclature I like that makes the most sense to me is the uh, AV valves. AV valves connect the atria and the ventricles. So you have a right AV valve and a left AV valve. Right? So you've got a valve here, an AV valve. AV connects atria and ventricle. Okay, so the blood goes through the AV valve. You've got one over here too. That's an AV valve. And all the AV valves do is connect the the A to the V, the atria to the ventricle. Alright? So everybody good on that so far? Okay, so then as the atria contract, that's gonna push blood through, this valve's gonna open. It's going to push blood into the right AV, right, right uh, ventricle. Okay. Now, technically, the hearts, both atria contract at the same time, both ventricles contract at the same time. So, technically, when the atria contract, the left atria is also pumping blood into the left ventricle. But we're just following the fate of the blood, so we're only drawing one side at a time. Okay, but technically both of these contract while these are relaxed and then both of these contract when these are relaxed right okay so the blood goes into the right ventricle then where does it go right they call them semilunar valves I just call them pulmonary valves meaning or I call it a pulmonary valve or a pulmon pulmonary semilunar valve because it's going to the pulmonary uh, pulmonary is like your lungs so it's going to your pulmonary uh, vasculature alright so for the right ventricle pumps blood to your lungs okay so that ends up going out to your lungs via the and this is in 3D so I can't really draw this very well, but it goes through your pulmonary semilunar valve or pulmonary valve okay goes to your lungs okay, lungs Lungs. We're going to get into the lungs eventually, right? But the pulmonary valve, semilunar valve, we'll call it pulmonary just because it's pulmonary semilunar valve. Okay, pumps blood from the right ventricle to the lungs via the pulmonary arteries okay 
Okay. Blue stands for deoxygenated blood, right? That makes sense so far? Ish? Okay, so all we've done is we received the deoxygenated blood in the right atria. It traveled through the right AV valve to the right ventricle. The right ventricle pumps blood to the lungs via the pulmonary semilunar valve, which is in 3D space, so you can't, it's hard for me to draw. Okay, but that sends deoxygenated blood to the lungs. Of course, in the lungs is a great place to get oxygen, right? So that's what happens next is that the, and because, this is just a terminology thing, because the vessel, the blood vessels are leaving the heart, they're considered to be arteries, even though it's deoxygenated blood. Right? This is the only example in your pulmonary circuitry where the deoxygenated blood is traveling in the arteries and the oxygenated blood is traveling in the veins. Everywhere else in your body, it's the opposite. Right? In your systemic circuit, it's op opposite. Okay, but the blood becomes oxidized or oxygenated, right? Okay, which return, which uh, returns the blood to your left atria. So this is the pulmonary vein. Right? So the blood returns to your left atria. from the lungs where it then travels through the left so then again when the atria contracts okay the the ventricles are relaxed so they're relaxed so they fill with blood as the atria is contracting and pushing the blood into them okay so when the left atria contracts it pushes the blood it goes through the left AV valve into the left ventricle and then the left ventricle has to pump it through the aortic valve. Where's the aortic valve on here? Yeah, you can see the top of it there. But you have uh, two semilunars. You have the pulmonary and you have the aortic. Right? And then that, of course, aortic, that's the one that's going to actually run to your aorta, right? Which is going to then deliver blood to your whole body. So that's the final step. So the final step is that your left ventricle, then when your ventricles contract, right? The right ventricle is pumping blood to the lungs. The left ventricle through the pulmonary semilunar valve. The right, or sorry, the, the right ventricle goes to the pulmonary semilunar valve. 
the left ventricle pumps blood to the aorta via the aortic semilunar valve. Okay? And then the aorta delivers blood everywhere. To your brain, to your all your systemic, all your peripheral, all your, your arms, your legs, your brain, and most importantly, to itself. Okay? And I think I put a picture here. Here's some more. You could watch a, a YouTube video. It's probably going to be a lot better than me. But here's the aorta, right? So it travels through this aortic semilunar valve to the aorta, which then has, of course, this branches out and delivers blood all over. But pay attention to this one. Right here in the very beginning, before the heart delivers blood to any of your peripheral vasculature, it also has these coronary arteries. And where do these cor coronary arteries run to? To the heart. It's got to feed itself. The heart has to deliver blood to itself as well. And it does that via these, well, you know, obviously there's blood in all the chambers of the heart. But the coronaries are kind of running through and uh, delivering nutrients to all the muscle. Right, to power the thing. And then those are the ones, of course, that are, here's the coronary circulation, right? You can see these things are running. Here's your right coronary artery. Here's your, let's see, where's the left? Right, where's the left? There we go. Yep. Your left uh, coronary artery. Right? So, uh, and these are delivering nutrients to the heart. And so those are the ones, obviously, uh, that in the Western world, this is the number one cause of heart attack. The number one cause of heart attack, so number one cause of death in the United States, in the Western world, is coronary atherosclerosis. So that's when the vessels that are delivering nutrients to your heart get clogged. If those get clogged, now you can't feed your heart. If you can't feed your heart, you get a heart attack. Um, right? Because you've cut off the nutrient supply to your own cardiac muscle. Okay? So remember, as these things go, as they travel through the aortic semilunar valve, here we go, there's a nice picture of it. Wait. No, that's, yeah, this is the left ventricle. See, it pumps it through the aortic semilunar valve. Wait, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, well, in that case, it's here. That's a better picture. As it pumps it, pumps it through the aortic semilunar valve. There we go. Right, and as you can see, these valves, they need to open and close depending upon whether the heart's pumping or relaxed. Okay, when the... When the ventricles are relaxed, the semilunar valves are closed. Okay? But the AV valves are open because the atria is pumping blood through the AV valves, right? Which is what you see here, the mitral valve and the, the mitral valve is the left AV valve. And vice versa. So then when the ventricles are contracting, the semilunar valves are open and the AV valves are closed. Okay, so, and remember that 
once the blood goes out the left ventricle, the first thing that gets fed, the first branch off of this aorta is actually the, cor the coronary arteries for the heart to feed itself, even before the brain. You need your heart. You could argue you might, well, you need both, but you could be brain dead and you still need a heart to be alive, <laughs> right? Okay, so, yeah, okay, so let's look a little bit at this plaque formation. How are we doing at time? 923, okay, almost there. So this plaque formation is a complex process. Essentially, it's your immune, a lot of it is your immune system. And we'll learn when we start talking about immunology, one of the major types of innate white blood cells in your body is macrophages. Macrophages are always hanging out. They're like the resident, they're the resident, they're kind of uh, like the National Guard. They're always just around and they're sounding the alarm. They're not off. Well, I mean, they will, they will go to sites of infection, but usually they're already there when the infection comes. And uh, so I don't know, is, is the National Guard the right analogy? Who here is military? The Marines are like the neutrophils. I never tried to use this analogy. The Marines are like the neutrophils. The Army would be like the lymphocytes. So what, which, who's around, like who's always just around all over the place? The police, I guess. Are they like the police? Or the, uh, maybe they're like the police. And then the neutrophils are like the firemen, because they're like the first on the scene. Or I don't know. Maybe they're the security guards. They're always just there. Maybe they're regular. I don't know. Whatever. I give up. Well, the, we'll talk about it more when we get to immunology. Okay. So, but you have this population of white blood cells that's just in your tissues already, and they're circulating around in your blood. But in this case, these ones, these macrophages, they like to eat things because usually they like to eat bacteria, or they like to eat things that are infecting you. They also eat tattoo ink. So, like this, if you have a tattoo. The ink is in your macrophages. So the macrophages saw the ink and ate it. But then they stay there for a while. And it, they get, even as they kind of die off, a new macrophage comes and eat the, eats them. So the ink remains there as the next macrophage comes. So the, mac, the ink is sitting in the macrophages. It's not sitting like in your skin somewhere. It's actually, it's the macrophages. So you can see the macrophages in your body via your tattoo. And they remain there for years and years and years, right? It's not like it's the same macrophage, but the, the new macrophage will come and eat the old one. And so over time, you will get some loss of ink, but those things are really hanging around in your tissues. In the case of the ones that are holding your tattoo ink, those are dermal macrophages. Okay? So anyway, they also like to eat fat, so that's a problem. So they like to eat fat that's circulating in your blood. And when they do that, they become what's called a foam cell, which is basically a really fat macrophage. Right? And these foam cells combine with, see they call them foam cells here. Those combine with a lot of other things. Platelets become involved. There's a necrotic cord. There's a whole pathology to this. But this is what helps in the development of those atherosclerotic plaques that block your coronaries and, and cause you to get a heart attack or a stroke. Another interesting phenomenon, this is just like random stuff now, since we're almost done. I just want to tell you that uh, ApoE4 is considered to be in the Western world the Alzheimer's gene. 
If you have APOE4, two copies of APOE4, that increases your likelihood of Alzheimer's by like 75% or something, right? It's really high. What's interesting about this is that APOE4 is actually the ancestral version of the gene, meaning that in Africa and Ethiopia, everybody's APOE4. And obviously, they're not getting Alzheimer's. That was like the original uh, version of this gene. And it's involved in lipid and, and cholesterol clearance, right? And so in the Western world, we've actually mutated. We've actually mutated to APOE3 and APOE2 to try to get away from this because of the fact that maybe it has to do with our huge consumption of fat in the Western world. But now is the case that if we have the original version of the gene, which everybody has in Africa and they don't have a problem. If we have that in the Western world, not only are we at high at risk for Alzheimer's disease, we're also at risk for coronary artery disease. So both of those things we're at risk for if we have the ancestral version of the gene in the Western world, which suggests that it might have something to do with our consumption of fats contributing to these pathologies. We know for certain that's, I mean, you can have genetic predispositions to high cholesterol, but also the Western diet is very rich in saturated fats, right? Fats. Okay, and that's it. You guys still awake? Hope you enjoyed that.